0: Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Hi everybody and welcome to this event looking back on 100 years of the BBC and the special magic of the BBC at Christmas. I'm Natalie Jamieson, a freelance broadcaster, writer and producer, and you can currently hear me on Joe Wiley's TV Culture Club on BBC Radio 2, also on BBC Five Live, and as a co-host on the popular books podcast Best Sellers. I will be your chair for this event, hosted by the RSA, and I am delighted to be joined by David Hendy. Hello, David.
1: Hello. Hi, Natalie.
0: So before we kick things off, I want to introduce you properly David is a writer, broadcaster, and emeritus professor of media and cultural history at the University of Sussex. He's published five books, including Life on Air, A History of Radio 4, and for the past five years has been the principal investigator on a project called Connected Histories of the BBC. His latest book, The BBC, A People's History, I have a visual aid. Uh, will inspire our conversation today, but given the time of year as well and the significance of the BBC and Christmas programming, that's going to be a focus as well. A sh- small bit of housekeeping before we get started. If you're watching along live, we'd love for you to get involved in the live chat. Please do share your thoughts and comments. If you're on Twitter, you can use the hashtag RSABBC100. That's RSABBC and then the numbers 100. Briefly about myself, I've worked at the BBC as staff for 14 years from 2002 to 2016 as a journalist, entertainment presenter and programme editor. I was based at Newsbeat at BBC Radio 1, so I have experienced the creative wonders of the BBC, but also just a few of its challenges. So let's begin. David, can we just start before we really get into the meat of this book with archiving and how you even began to encapsulate a history of millions of hours of programming over a century. You do start the book by addressing that, but can you just talk us through that research process?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I don't want people to feel sorry for me, but it's it's actually a really difficult task to, t- to tell the history of the BBC, uh, because as you mentioned, there are millions of programmes, actually somewhere between 10 and 20 million programmes. So it's impossible to cover even just a tiniest fraction of those. Tens of thousands of people have worked for the BBC, so you can't convey everyone's contribution. And the BBC has extraordinary written archives Again, miles, miles and miles of shelves. So you have to be selective and yet somehow through choosing the kind of the key moments in the BBC the kind of the tent poles of the of the last 100 years you know war and conflict and great cultural moments great national moments you have to reflect those but you also have to somehow encapsulate the kind of the everyday the ordinary um because that's part of what the BBC means to us as well so it's a, it's a it's a difficult process of selection where you're trying To tell lots of different stories that somehow add up to conveying what I call the BBC ness of the BBC. There was one um, set of records that really helped me, and that was uh, as one of the projects I was was, um, involved in was looking at the BBC's own archive of oral history interviews. So since 1972, the BBC's been busy quietly recording in-depth interviews with former members of staff. 600 or so of these exist. They haven't really been made publicly accessible until now, but I was given uh, privileged access to these and immersed myself in these stories. And they they really help, not just because they give eyewitness accounts of key moments in BBC history, but they really bring alive the, the atmosphere, the, the feelings, the, the, the smell of the studios and the production offices and and so on. So that was that was a real help for me.
0: That sounds absolutely fascinating. And I'm quite disappointed that I haven't been asked to give one of those interviews as a former staff member. <laughs> but maybe it's maybe it's coming. Um, well, so there's a couple of things you touched on initially that I'd love to go into in more depth. So, first of all, the beginnings of the BBC and the three men who started it, but also then if we can move on to after that, that tussle that I think has always been there between the organisation and the people it serves, and also those that work there.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, let's start start with those pioneers in 1922. And I wanted to start with those three men. Uh, uh, and there are Arthur Burroughs, Cecil Lewis, and perhaps the one that we know most about, John Reith. I wanted to start with them, not the story of the invention of wireless, You know, the communication technology underpins broadcasting because wireless was actually already 25 years old in 1922. It seems to me that the real story is of these, the creative nucleus of the BBC and their experience of war. We're talking about the immediate aftermath of the First World War. And there's a sense in the air that civilization uh, is fragile. There's been this slide into barbarism. And we can see that the individual responses of these people in interesting ways. So let's just start with Arthur Burroughs. Humble background, he becomes in 1922 the director of of programs for the BBC. Um, He was brought up in Oxford. He worked as a reporter on the local paper. He then worked for the Marconi Company. And in the First World War, he was responsible for eavesdropping on enemy wireless propaganda. And he was very struck. He thought uh, he was really disturbed by the spread of disinformation, a theme that sounds familiar, perhaps, or even now. Uh, And he thought if... If radio, this technology, can be used to spread information like a poison gas, as he put it, why should it not be used to spread what he called a doctrine of common sense? He, he talked about saturating the ether with truth ions. So he had this kind of this commitment to using radio for kind of important education and citizenship. Then there was. Uh, Cecil Lewis, who was Arthur Burroughs' deputy, he was just 24 years old in 1922. He'd been a teenage fighter pilot in the war, and he'd been exhilarated by that. I mean, it was exciting, but he was also increasingly despairing at the destruction that he could witness looking down below at the trenches. And he comes out of the war thinking, how can we increase mutual understanding and and, and achieve a kind of peaceful, civilised world? And he believed it was something to do with spreading art and spreading music and spreading literature. But how? He had no idea. We hadn't heard of radio until 1922. And then there's John Reith, who's had a deeply religious upbringing in a Glasgow household. His father, a minister of the church, and his mother, a kind of do-gooder in the city. And he's been brought up to believe that he has to serve God by serving the public doing good in the world in some way. He's not sure exactly how to do this either. But if you put all three of these people together, Arthur Burroughs, who knows about radio, John Reith, who has this sense of moral mission, and and Cecil Lewis, who believes in the, the spreading of culture, what you get is, to paraphrase John Reith, this kind of great idea to bring the best that has been thought and said and done, to as many people as possible. And both parts of that equation were really, really important to them. It wasn't just the best. It was to as many people as possible. You, you're not going to re-civilize society after war unless everyone can be part of this kind of bold experiment. And radio, this thing that was transmitted freely, available through the ether, was going to be the means of, of doing it. It was kind of it was the means to an end, really, a great kind of ethical cultural vision.
0: And it's fascinating because I think you know, we can relate this very much, I think, to 2022, that it's a very noble endeavour to want to do that. And they all had their own separate reasons for doing that. But the very fact that it's three white men from fairly middle class backgrounds doing this already means that what they're selecting to put out to the masses is from a limited scenario, really.
1: It is. And I mean, you know, so so their sense of what the best is, is is clearly conditioned by their upbringing and their background and so on. And and someone like Reith, for instance, a very complicated man, actually much more multidimensional than we usually give him credit for. Could be very kind, for instance. Um, but he was pretty boneheaded about aspects of culture. You know, he was very clear that jazz was kind of vulgar and and and, and nonsense and so on. And he, he believed in the kind of the canon and and. Shakespeare and and, and so on. Um, And Cecil Lewis, for instance, had this sort of noble idea that that, uh, in time everyone would love Beethoven, you know, that this was was the ambition. It was a long-term vision. They they believed that kind of nudging public taste uh, in the direction of kind of away from popular dance music and towards Beethoven was going to be a long haul, perhaps a century it would take. So they believed in that. The one thing I would say is that... As the BBC grows in the 1920s and the 1930s, it it knows that the majority of people listening to its service are working-class people, and they're not going to listen if their culture, their tastes are ignored altogether. So the BBC was never quite in the business of, of just presenting as a fait accompli, here are the works of high culture, take it or leave it. There was always, right from the beginning, Popular dance music, for instance, far more popular dance music than, say, chamber music or anything like that. There were lots of talks, many of them highfalutin and intellectual, but there were also very popular talks about a foggy day in London or how to tin sardines or how do bats go to sleep and and and, and so on. And and it was this kind of mix was really really important. It, it was it was the, this idea that you, if you're too far ahead of public taste then you lose your following. And if you lose your following, you're not going to be able to have that kind of culture, that success in the cultural mission you crave. And and the BBC, again, as it grows and its audience becomes more varied, it does know that it needs to reflect Britain in all its diversity. And it it does this imperfectly. It doesn't always get it right. But, you know, the classic example of that, I suppose, is through some of the regional programmes. If you think about the North region, for instance, one of the great regions in in BBC history throughout the 1930s, it was a seedbed of fantastically experimental programmes, social documentaries. Producers like Olive Shapley, and Jeffrey Bridson would go out and about through the streets of Manchester and Salford and so on. And they take mobile recording trucks and they would interview Ordinary people—they really profoundly believed that the microphone should be made available to everyone, and they were particularly interested in kind of capturing and portraying the experience of working-class life in a series of seminal documentaries. So, so the BBC was kind of always so big and and and, and so varied that it's we have to be really careful not to characterise it in a kind of one-dimensional way, and even if John Reith loathed the kind of stuff that Geoffrey Brideson or Olive Shapley was doing, he was too busy dealing with kind of high politics and finance to kind of interfere, interfere at a sort of daily level with programme uh, uh, ideas. So, so you know, there was a certain amount of freedom to push the boundaries.
0: It does seem that that's been a, a thread, I think, throughout the BBC's history of some of the greatest things sometimes have slipped under the radar and then only once they've become popular have, has the kind of true significance of them culturally been felt? Are there any examples of that that sort of spring to mind for you?
1: Well, I suppose the other example is if you think about, for instance, um, in the post-war era, programmes for women, uh, uh, both on radio and on television. Uh, g- generally speaking, you know the the bosses of the BBC were still, you know, uh, you know middle class white men, uh, and they focused on uh, the peak time. What was going out in in the evenings, for instance, and daytime programmes on the radio they tended not to listen to. So, for instance, the people who created Women Woman's Hour which went out first on the light programme before it transferred to the home service and Radio 4 um, from 1946. That was a programme run by a team of women, many of whom were kind of classic blue stocking kind of, you know, Oxbridge types. Um, But they were deeply committed to the idea of being connected with their audience. And this idea that, yes, Woman's Hour as a programme, for instance, it would have fashion and it would have recipes and it would have tips on childcare. But it was also going to take its listeners outside the four walls of the home, as as, as one of the producers put it, um, to actually engage with the world of politics and entertainment and drama and so on. So, you know, it was they there would be interviews about women engineers. There would be interviews about key government policies uh, and, and the new welfare provisions of the NHS and, and so on. Um, and and it didn't. It's a program that really, really didn't draw a distinction between, if you like, the, the personal and the political. It, it wanted to combine both. And it was a pioneer, too, in terms of its relationship with its listeners. I mean, the post bag, the Woman's Hour post bag was a a very, very important guide to what they should be talking about. And they were very conscious that something like three quarters of their listeners uh, in the late 40s and the early 50s were working class. And so, for instance, you know, there are memos there in the written archives with, with women's hour producers saying um, we shouldn't assume that our listeners have refrigerators. We shouldn't assume that our listeners go away for a summer holiday and so on. There's a kind of a, a, a careful calibrated awareness of the lives of their listeners. And and you can see something similar happening um to women's programmes in television. Olive Shapley, who I I mentioned earlier, you know, great pioneering social documentary maker in the 1930s in Manchester. In the 1950s, she's presenting afternoon women's programmes on television. And she's determined that these programmes are going to tackle art and culture theater reviews again politics she she was even presenting a whole episode that was about space and space exploration and so on as far as they were concerned you know it was this kind of rich mix it was this idea That was articulated actually by a post-war director general, uh William Haley, who said, "What, What is the BBC for? It's not actually for creating a whole nation of radio listeners or television viewers, it's for creating what he called true citizenship and the leading of a full life. Now, what does that full life mean? It's not just about virtue, it's about pleasure, it's about entertainment, it's about relaxation, it's about the rounded citizen, if you like. And this was kind of taken to heart by many of the programme makers at the BBC, that, you know, it was important to offer a rich mix, a balanced diet, that that television, for instance, in the 1950s, was thought of, the schedule was thought of as like a, a menu at a restaurant. You know, the evening schedule would begin with something kind of light and appetising. Then there would be a substantial main course, which might be good for you, but hopefully also entertaining, and then something sweet for pudding. And so, you know, television programmes would have ballet and boxing. They'd have an interview with the artist John Piper, followed by someone tearing a telephone directory in half. And, and the idea was that that really is helping to kind of, for us to have a full full life. Same and, for children's programmes as well.
0: And it works. Like, you know, on paper, that kind of thing wouldn't work really, but in practice it does. And I think as somebody who's worked at the BBC, that's often fascinating is how you you have these discussions off air if you like that feel like they really won't work and it's only once it's broadcast you understand what it was meant to be and what it was meant to do and I'd love to kind of tap into your hugely knowledgeable brain about the BBC in terms of how do you can even attempt to satisfy you can't satisfy all the people all of the time but enough of the people to keep the BBC going and how World events have snapped that back into focus at various points. I'm thinking specifically of World War Two, but also more recently, the pandemic.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's I mean, it's difficult, isn't it? Because um, if you are trying to kind of offer a service of everything for everyone, (laughs) then the risk is that you end up pleasing no one. Um, and 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 the BBC has kind of grappled with this in all sorts of different ways. So, you know, right at the beginning, John Reith said, Well, we have to we have to be aware of serving minorities, but we also have to please the majority. So the idea is that, well, maybe you manage this through a mixed schedule. Some things will be, you know, popular and and maybe kind of you know quite simple, and other things will be more sophisticated and so on. And over time, I suppose, broadcasting has tended to separate out those programs so that instead of them being pushed together to create a kind of happy serendipity, if you like, uh, from one moment to the next, they kind of get separated out into different channels. Some are more popular, some are kind of, you know, uh, more challenging and, uh, and so on. But, but the BBC is kind of, in a sense, there's no simple solution to this. One of the solutions is as one of the great television figures of the 1950s, Hugh Weldon put it, the BBC's mission is to make the good popular and the popular good. Now, actually, that's a really, really interesting uh, phrase, isn't it? Because it does mean that it, even when it's doing the popular stuff, entertainment, it's done in a way that seems to be soaked with BBC values it's not the same as kind of the commercial version of entertainment and I would say that there is still some truth in that so if you take something like Strictly Come Dancing which is a kind of classic Saturday night entertainment show um, there are several things about it that are essentially BBC Um, for a start um, no one asked for Strictly Come Dancing to be invented. It was something that was you sort of created from within, an idea. Um, I don't think people would have predicted that some sort of strange revival of Come Dancing was on the cards at the beginning of the 21st century. So there is that sort of sense in which it's a kind of an, it's an innovation of a format, a taking of a, a risk. And it's also kind of lacking in cruelty. It's kind of it's imbued with a sense of kindness and it's also imbued with extraordinary production values. I mean, you know, the costumes, the hair design, the the set design and so on, the ability to run a hugely complicated live show live um, uh, is is something which. Is a reflection of the resources and the cultural capital that the BBC can bring to that. So I think, I mean, this is a roundabout way of answering your question, which is one of the ways in which the BBC can can try to include everyone is by you know doing popular, accessible, inviting programmes, but doing them with a kind of commitment to to quality. Um, It's not straightforward, but I think that, you know, the BBC's kind of mission remains essentially a Mm -hmm. version still of that Mm -hmm. DNA that Reith and Lewis and Arthur Burroughs planted to bring the best that has been thought and said and done to as many people as possible. I've read a recent document at the BBC, which says, what is distinctive about the BBC? Now, a lot of people say that the BBC, when they talk about distinctiveness, they think about individual programmes the news or or opera or, or certain genres like that. But no, what this document said is that what's distinctive about the BBC is the combination of programme range and social reach um, and that ability to try and offer the fullest range possible to as many people as possible is what programme makers have spent a 100 years grappling with, you know, how popular and accessible do you make it before you begin to perhaps lose its sort of inherent value? Um, You know, how pure are you about a piece of art uh, before you lose your your audience? These are kind of constant, constant questions. And of course, when it comes to matters of news and, and contemporary political debate, of course, it becomes much more heated. Um, and, you know, in, in one sense, the B- it, life would be easier for the BBC if there was a consensus about controversial issues. But it's been said that uh, the nation divided puts the BBC on the rack. And it really, really does. I mean, I don't know if you want to sort of talk a little bit more about, about news and the news agenda and notions of impartiality. But I mean, that's that's clearly something that, that leads people to fall out of love with the BBC.
0: Absolutely. I, I'd love to get there's so much we can say about about that and the and the setup of that and how it's how it's implemented across such a big organization. But just before we get there, I'd love to also just kind of touch on that, how all of these arguments about whether the BBC was doing the right thing or for the right people or for enough people, how one thing I think it has done well is lent into world events, so like World War II yes. or the pandemic and use those as actually a pretty effective tool to say look this is actually what the BBC is for so yes there's all this noise but can we just forget about that and let's snap back and focus on what it does and what it can do well.
1: Uh, Yes I mean absolutely and I mean just let's just take the pandemic and the war in reverse order as it were in the pandemic I mean to go back to Strictly Come Dancing again I mean in the pandemic you have this moment where Uh, In many ways, very similar to the beginning of the war. Other things shut down very quickly. Theatres shut down, cinemas shut down and so on. And then suddenly um, the BBC, which is sort of broadcast into people's homes, becomes... A space where things still can happen Uh, and the BBC very, very quickly and I think impressively stepped up uh, during during the lockdown to provide, for instance, more bite-size curriculum material uh, to to support schooling and homeschooling um, and uh, offering to screen dramas, plays that had been cancelled in the theatre. And then, I mean, jump forward to December 2020. um, We might recall that um, the final of Strictly Come Dancing that year happened on air just a matter of moments after Boris Johnson had had addressed the nation to say that, you know, once more uh, lockdown had come too late and now we had to have restrictions at Christmas. And so the mood of the nation was kind of rather grim. Christmas was, as it were, cancelled. And then the immediate response of the BBC is it brings us strictly come dancing. And and Craig Revel Horwood says right at the beginning of the programme in the circumstances I'm going to be offer nothing but kindness and good feedback in this episode. And, it, and it, it brought a kind of very badly needed sense of joy and escapism for a you know for a country that was collectively facing a kind of pretty bleak Christmas. Now, in many ways, that pandemic experience mapped onto the experience of the BBC during the second world war where the BBC was a very very important as a purveyor of news uh, people wanted to know what was the latest what was the latest uh, from the from the front from in on the military campaign and so on there was a great appetite for news but also the BBC was important for boosting morale entertainment was was important the BBC knew that its audience, that's national audience, needed some sense of hope, um, they needed escapism, and they needed to kind of somehow be re- reassured that the, the what they were going through, rationing, blackouts, bombing, um, that their ability to cope with that was going to be part of the war effort and that things would be okay in the end whatever happened so so i think that was that was a, that was a, a very important certainly on the home front i mean the war if we're talking about the war of course there are a couple of other things i think that are really important one is that the bbc really does become an international broadcaster for the first time and it and through that it becomes something of a global brand a benchmark and and so it's 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 broadcasting, for instance, to occupied Europe. It's broadcasting to enemy countries like like Germany. Uh, by the end of the war, it's broadcasting in 42 languages. Something like 20 million people are listening in occupied Europe. And people, for instance, who were involved in the French resistance speak very, very candidly at the end of the war about how listening to the BBC was a, was in many ways one of the first acts of resistance. It was very important in supporting them. And, and that sort of sense in which the BBC becomes associated with truthfulness and reliability. I mean, you know, there were struggles in the wartime. It had constant friction with the government um it had to suppress certain aspects of news but generally it comes out of the war with this reputation for being um reliably accurate and truthful generally and just one final thing about the war, which is that the people at the BBC were also under attack, right? The BBC was a target of the Luftwaffe. And so, you know, the broadcasters had put their own bodies on the line. And that, I think, induced a sort of sense of shared experience with the civilian population and a sense of camaraderie and a sense of purpose. that broadcasting actually really mattered in moments of crisis.
0: Yeah, Um I have various personal stories that come to mind for that, but uh, I was reading the news on Radio 1 on the day of the July 7th London bombings, and that was an experience I will never forget, and absolutely that collective coming together, and you just do what you can on those days. That's that's why you're there. That's what you do. But that notion of news and impartiality as somebody who's worked in BBC journalism, I mean, that's kind of instilled in you from the get-go, but it's also something that's very... Challenging in many ways too, and also just sort of running alongside that, if we can, I think, bring into the conversation the notion of the license fee. So people are are paying for this service as well, so they have a vested interest in it too.
1: Yes, I mean the the notion of impartial. I mean, like you, I've got something you know uh, further away in time, but I had some experience of working for the BBC as a journalist, so I I know from the inside, like you, that this is something which is taken seriously, and it's grappled with, um, you know, this is endlessly debated. And I know a lot of people will say, that's the trouble with the BBC, they're just constantly debating stuff. But actually, the debating is important, the assessing of what goes and what doesn't go, I think is really important. I mean, one of the things I would say is that in, in a sense, the BBC is not, it's not quite true that the BBC is politically unaligned, because in a way, it's, it's sort of committed to the idea of liberal democracy broadly defined it's it's you know that sense of the rule of law of of politics as represented in Parliament, the notion of free rational debate, and and so on. So it's committed to the idea that, that, you know, there should be a range of opinions. And that, of course, is automatically going to upset uh, any of us at any given time. And there are times when I shout at the radio and turn off the radio and kind of am appalled. Um, On the other hand, I don't think I'm as appalled as I would be if all I heard was stuff that I agreed with. I mean, you know, how tedious would that be um but there are there are several things that complicate this mission and and you're right the license fee in a sense is one of them license fee um has been described as the worst possible funding mechanism apart from all the others um and and the reason is in a sense because it does mean that we all ha- have a sort of sense of national ownership right it is ours it's not a state broadcaster it's not a commercial broadcaster it is ours it's a public uh corporation um which gives us the right as listeners and viewers to kind of to complain um but the conflict there are things that make it really really challenging for the BBC and 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 one of those is governments tend to want broadcasters to reflect only their point of view uh, and there are kind of classic moments where this creates real fallings out you can, you can only have to think of the general strike in 1926 when the chancellor of the exchequer at the time winston churchill wanted to take over the bbc was very close to taking over the bbc and trying to turn it into essentially a kind of propaganda mouthpiece for the government doing the the general strike um The Suez Crisis in 1956, when again, Anthony Eden's government threatened to take over the BBC if it went ahead and and give uh, a right of reply to the Labour leader, Hugh Gateskill. Um And you can think about, for instance, the Falklands War uh, during the Margaret Thatcher uh, era, where, you know, the BBC felt duty bound to reflect the fact that there was a minority, a significant minority, of people who were unsure about the wisdom of kind of military response in the South Atlantic. And it was accused of being a kind of, you know, of treachery, basically basically for not talking about our boys for referring to the troops as british troops not our troops and 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 so on. so so you know governments are always going to fall out with the bbc and it's it's maybe slightly different between the conservatives and labor in, in this respect i think that that labor tends to be Disappointed with the BBC because it, it thinks that the BBC doesn't sufficiently compensate for the right wing bias of the British press. With the Conservatives, I think there's something slightly deeper and more ideological, which is a kind of suspicion of the sort of collectivist nature of the BBC, the sort of the the, the sort of public sectorness of the BBC, sort of slight, seems more innately um, suspicious uh, to them, um, and. And it has to be said that when it comes to news and current affairs, the BBC sometimes doesn't help itself. I mean, it's got a kind of commitment to the idea of kind of teaching us all about the workings of government and so on. It has to be close to the worlds of Whitehall and and, and Westminster. But sometimes it does feel as if it's a bit too close and it's a bit too wrapped up with, you know, what's happening at Westminster, what's happening in in Whitehall. Um, And... We know that there is that sort of, you know, there's this transfer of personnel, you know, at senior levels, uh, you know, a sort of revolving door between parts of BBC News and, for instance, the Downing Street press machine and 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 so on, uh, which, you know, people, I think, have a legitimate worry about. Um, and so there is, you know, there's something which is external about the attitude of governments and there's something internal about a kind of culture within news which, you know, generally finds it difficult sometimes to step back from the news agenda that is set by by the press. And and impartiality, in one sense, is the kind of the great noble tradition of the BBC. And it sometimes gets confused in the heat of the moment in the studio and the production office with the much simpler and more reductive notion of balance, which is a problem, right? Because, you know, the BBC is not supposed to be balanced between truth and lies. And and, and there are certain issues like, for instance, where it has come a cropper when discussing things like climate breakdown in the past, where it has given undue prominence to climate sceptics um, and impartiality in a sense is a much more sophisticated and robust idea and there's a there's a bbc document uh in existence which breaks it down into 12 ingredients i've got i've got them listed here balance accuracy context distance even handedness fairness objectivity open-mindedness rigor self-awareness transparency and truth um so you know Complicated to to weigh them all up, but it's an urgent task, I think, Um uh, because I think that if you're you're always going to displease at least some part of the population because people will think differently and hold views very very passionately. But if you can kind of exert this sort of sense in which you you are approaching a subject with a kind of open mindedness and a fairness, and you treat people decently in that respect then I think that you've probably done the best you can to maintain that sense in which you don't really have your own agenda and I think that's very important for the BBC.
0: Yeah I do too and I'm I'm sure you're similar in that anybody who's ever passed through the BBC in, in terms of news like you well in other departments too the BBC editorial guidelines is a weighty tome <laughs> that anybody has to get into and a lot of it is common sense but it's yeah that's very daunting to live by as well um i think we should mention christmas at this point because again in that sort of balance of trying to to offer something different you know 2022 is we're going to see king charles's first christmas broadcast his christmas speech on christmas day um what's the history of that and and why and how did it become of such cultural importance that we all returned to either listen or watch this?
1: Well, I mean, the first um, Royal Christmas Day broadcast was in in 1932 when King uh, Charles, Charles, King George V um, was speaking from Sandringham he was actually a little bit reluctant to do this. He had to be kind of persuaded. Uh, and uh, he was also a little bit nervous about it. Um, uh, so because it was fairly unprecedented, uh, but it was an extraordinary success in many ways, because, you know, King King George V spoke as a sort of family member. And he kind of created at this sort of moment, this idea that of the royal family being listened to, by families, not just around Britain, but across the empire. Now, this was important and it happened on Christmas Day because right from the beginning, Christmas Day had been pretty important to the BBC. If you look back at really early copies of the Radio Times, for instance, one of the things that's most striking is how often you see the fireside, um, you know, that radio associated with, with being at the heart and the hearth of the home, a domestic medium. And it meant that in radio terms, the autumn and the winter season were the key seasons, right? That's when people were inside and that's when they listened to most radio. That's when they bought their radio sets and so on. And Christmas Day was the kind of natural climax to this autumn winter season. And it was when the BBC therefore put on its sort of best programs. It showed what it could do. And, and the, the King's broadcast in 1932 was really just one part of a much bigger, sprawling kind of relay uh, which the BBC specialised in, which, which wove together live and recorded inputs from all around the empire, not just around the country. There would be kind of, you know, from a coal mine in South Africa uh, cut to a choir in New Zealand and interspersed with lots of of messages from people to their families back home so this was kind of the the major kind of um interwar kind of nature of, of of christmas day um and and also you know you get these another set piece event the royal institution christmas lecture which was actually first broadcast on bbc television the pre-war television service in 1936 uh and has been you know a, a feature pretty well ever ever since but you know christmas is not just about these kind of grand set pieces. There's lots and lots of homely stuff. So Christmas food, for instance, has been a kind of real feature of of both radio and and television programmes. 1975, there was Fanny Craddock Cooks for Christmas, which featured, uh, for instance, green coloured piped mashed potato. I'm not sure uh, I'd like to eat that. No, I'm not sure how that went down either. Uh, 1990, Delia Smith kind of, you know, takes over and it's 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 getting a little bit uh, more, more modern. And then, of course, there are the Christmas specials, uh, and they really take off in the late 1950s, the 1960s, and the 1970s. Christmas Night with the Stars ran for many, many years, a kind of variety show, basically, with a sort of party atmosphere Uh, Billy Cotton and his band playing the music and and, and so on. And these sort of evolve into kind of Christmas specials of uh, the the great comedians. So the Morkman Wise Christmas Show, for instance, which in 1977 uh, got 28.8 million viewers. Um, And and that was a kind of moment, really, before we had a lot of kind of remote controls or, or video recorders where you know getting the audience uh, at at an early stage in the evening was vital because inertia would sort of set in and and people would stay with that channel for the rest of the evening so that was part of the kind of the battle if you like for for viewers it's less intense now because we we time shift, we we record stuff, we watch it on iPlayer, we can, we can watch it almost at any time. But we have this kind of almost a sort of residual habit now that's built in, that we have an expectation that on Christmas Day there are going to be certain specials. It's not going to be Christmas without the Christmas episode of, of Call the Midwife, for instance. Um, and, you know, there are still big audiences. I mean, you know, when EastEnders, this is going back a bit, Now, but you know, the Christmas Day 1986 episode where you know Dirty Den confronts Angie uh, and the divorce and everything kind of erupts. I mean, that had an audience of 30 million, it was the biggest television audience in Britain of the decade. (laughs) Um, so so you know, these are these are moments where we we have got used to structuring our christmas sort of schedule our domestic schedules around what's happening on television even though in a sense we don't have to it's a bit like the shipping forecast which is which <laughs> which you know Boats no longer need the shipping forecast; they can get their information elsewhere. But the shipping forecast is now woven into our, the rhythm of our sort of daily lives on on radio, and it's a bit like that with with Christmas television, and and the BBC has been absolutely at the heart of that.
0: But I think it's one of those ongoing discussions, right? Because yes, they're streaming, and there's so many different ways to watch on demand, and and also. You know, the BBC doesn't operate in a vacuum. So alongside it is all these other broadcasters coming up and and obviously so many streaming platforms where we are now in 2022. But still, there is something about that community experience of whether you're listening to the same programme as it's being broadcast live at the same time or watching something, which is where I think Christmas becomes such a focus and as somebody who grew up with the top of the pops christmas specials being the most important thing on christmas day um i think there's still something fascinating in that that i think we assumed would diminish and go away but if anything it's almost coming back even stronger that we want to watch and share collectively together
1: i think that's right and i think that in many ways this is this is a good news scenario for the bbc in that there is a inner a- you know generally an increasingly individualized society right and 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 one where we're constantly told we should only pay for what we use and and so on and so forth there is still a residual desire for something shared and for something collective, and you you can see that back in the wartime for sure. You know, programs like "It's That Man Again," Itmar, and music while you work, and and so on. That idea of the, sh- the the joke that you can tell and retell with your friends and share in the street the next day. That shared experience that that kind of fuels kind of conversation and 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 gossip and discussion around around the dinner table. Um, and you know, I think that that is that is still alive. I mean, I think, you know, the more individualized in many ways, the more fragmented our media consumption is, the more these moments of coming together. And I mean, you know, perhaps the most recent one would be, for instance, the funeral of, of, of Queen Elizabeth II. They become kind of invested with even more meaning, I think. That's 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 very true. And I think that, that in a way that's, that's good news for the bbc i think that that uh, that willingness that keenness to actually have something shared and it very often we're taken by surprise by it as well i think it's not entirely predictable and it's also it has to be said not inevitable that it will stay that way i mean you know politically we're in a, you know a, a culture and a climate where we are encouraged to think selfishly sometimes, that we should only be paying for what we use. But the idea that actually in the BBC, we have this kind of community resource, right? We all pitch in some money uh, and we there might be plenty in it that we don't use. We don't, some of us don't use the BBC very often, maybe, especially younger people who are not listening to radio or watching television so much. But that doesn't matter in a sense, because what you're doing is that, you know, at some stage in your life, you'll need it a bit like the NHS. You hope you don't need it, but you probably will at some stage, if not now, later. And even if you don't use it later, someone else will use it. And that idea of, like, contributing to something which in the meantime becomes this extraordinary natural resource that nurtures a kind of decent public culture. I think is something that we really, really need to cherish.
0: Yeah, I think so too. And I'm aware that our time is almost running out. So I just wanted to touch on a a couple of things finally. Um, First of all, again, there are so many examples of this over the past century, but part of the joy and pain of the BBC has been in its live programming. And as you mentioned there, the unpredictability of what people might say. Anybody could say when it's live. And you've got some beautiful examples in your book. There was one that really struck me that I was personally interested in because it was a Radio One example with John Lennon and Yoko Ono on John Peel show discussing a very intimate family circumstances and how actually that can then shift a discussion nationally.
1: Yeah, I think that's I think that's really important. Um, I I think, um, you know, like you say, with live broadcasting, there's always the element of unpredictability and usually... What is very striking about these moments is that when they happen uh, and something controversial maybe is said, and there are kind of, there are sort of, you know, I mean, the John Peel example where, you know, they're discussing uh, Yoko Ono uh, um, uh, is is a kind of, in many ways, a very moving example, but there are more controversial ones. For instance, uh, you know, the Russell Brand, Jonathan Ross uh, moment, um, you know, of inappropriate behavior on air. But. Even in those cases, what's very striking is that at the, at the precise moment they happen, very few listeners or viewers actually complain. What tends to happen is that the newspapers get hold of the story a couple of days later. And, of course, they, they use this in a sense. They weaponize it uh, to attack the BBC. And then you get the deluge of complaints. And one of the things that that tells us, I think, is that by and large, most of us, most of the time, are willing to kind of be exposed to difficult material or unexpected material, material that challenges us in some way, uh, and we can cope with it. And, and, you know, one of the things I kind of hope is that the BBC carries on being brave about this, you know, because one of the kind of, you know, throughout its history, it has had moments where it's kind of thought, you know, in order not to cause offence, it plays it safe And, you know, in many ways, the most exciting time in the BBC's history was under Hugh Carlson Green in the 1960s, where you had a director general who said to his programme makers, if you're not offending some of the viewers some of the time, you're not doing a job properly. And by that, he was really trying to do something positive, which is to say for society to grow in a healthy way, we need to be confronted with difficult things, surprising things and so on, not just Endlessly supplied with stuff that we already know, and we already know that we like. Um, and and again, doesn't that go back to kind of the core idea of the BBC that it has to introduce us to kind of parts of the world, dimensions of the world that we perhaps didn't know existed or we 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 didn't understand.
0: Yeah. So we- so
1: you know, I think that's a really really important kind of idea to, again to cherish.
0: I think so too, and it feels like the perfect. Way to wrap up this conversation, just with that sense of wonder of actually, who knows what's going to happen next? But you know, we're here to see and hear how the BBC deals with it. Um, David, thank you so much for this great thank conversation. You. I've really enjoyed it. Uh, David's book, The BBC: A People's History, is out now. The RSA has provided a discount code for anybody buying the book through Foils. That code is Foils F O Y L E S RSA twenty. The number's two zero. Both that code, though, and a link to the book are going to be appearing in the live chat as we speak. So thank you to everybody who's tuned in to watch today and thank you to the RSA for hosting this event. If you'd like to learn more about the work of the RSA and how to get involved in their global fellowship community, you can visit the RSA.org. Thank you all for watching and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews and animations.